0: Welcome to the Big Fan Theory. Chris, welcome to the Big Fan Theory. Thank you. Great to have you here. Congratulations on becoming a recent Master of Wine. Um, So I'd normally like to start by asking people in 30 seconds or less if they can tell us who are they, what they do, and why they're qualified to talk about what they're going to talk about.
1: Absolutely. Thank you. I've been in the wine industry for 20 years, uh, primarily as a winemaker, and then more recently in the um, B2B world and corporate wine and spirit supply. I work for one of the largest wine and spirits producers in the state of California, O'Neill Vintners. So I have uh, personal experience with some of the more intimidating P3 topics such, and mp 4 such as supply and demand, branding, bulk shipping, QA, QC, uh, and some other topics like that. So uh, happy to answer any questions that you have uh, from a real-life point of view.
0: Perfect. Perfect. Uh, well, yeah. Well, let's just jump in with some P three stuff then. Um, uh, right. <laughs> so, yeah, this is a relatively recent one. I think you might have even had this in your exam. Assess the various methods of transporting wine in bulk. What precautions should be taken from a QA perspective? Um, so, this is what this is kind of your bread and butter as a company, right?
1: Sure thing. Absolutely, we do a lot of bulk transport, and a lot of uh, the determinant is where the wine is going, right? Whether you're shipping overland or over the ocean. Um, because you can't, you can't send a tanker overseas, right? So, um, and you have different options. If you're shipping overland, you have a tanker truck or you have smaller uh, containers, there's, you know, totes, basically drums, spacecraft containers, and that's going to be largely determined by the volume that you're shipping. It's always better to ship, obviously, in a topped compartment. Um, so you want to fit the, the shipping method to your size, your volume. Um, if you're shipping by tanker, uh, but you only have a few thousand gallons, then you you want a split compartment load, uh, which is possible. You don't want to have a, a partial load sloshing around in a 6,500-gallon tanker truck. Um, and then, if you're shipping overseas, then the the gold standard would be the twenty four thousand liter Flexi. And then there are some smaller, uh, like ISO tanks and other other options. I haven't personally worked with those. Um, the twenty four thousand liter Flexi is my uh, my mainstay. Um, but but there are considerations with all of those uh, in terms of how they're loaded, and then also how they're um, how you do the QC. You know, and, and, and you have to pull samples and whatnot. That's important to be able to know, uh, have an idea what the wine is like um, when it left your facility in the event that there's a problem in transit. Um, and for all of those methods, you also want to be real concerned about what might have been shipped previously. In the case of the flexi bags, you need a new bag. Um, that's not usually an issue, but you. The bag needs to be intact. Sometimes there's a a defect with the bag or a puncture, in which case you can't load or there might be a leak in transit, uh, which may not be your responsibility as the supplier, but it's certainly your problem. Um, In the case of shipping in a a tanker truck or a a tote or any other overland method, um, there are regulations about what can have been in the tanker before and generally it has to be something that's food grade you have to provide a washout certification uh, showing that the tanker was appropriately cleaned and sanitized before it showed up to load wine those are all things that are really supplier issues Um, but you also have to be concerned with the the method of filling you have to uh, think about if you're shipping overseas, you need to filter going into that flexi bag. If you have a re-fermentation in the bag, it's going to burst the bag or cause a leakage, not to mention quality issues in the final product. Um, you need to make sure, again, that you take your samples. You need uh, sterile loading conditions. Uh, you need to do all of your typical pre-ship work. It's chemical microanalysis, analysis organoleptic analysis, uh, verifying the legality of the product the same as you would do if you were packaging the wine in-house and then once something leaves the facility in bulk you may not be responsible for it anymore in fact most suppliers will have a clause in the contract saying that something is you know fca or fob that for example the winery so once it leaves the winery it's no longer the responsibility um of the producer but there are various problems that can happen in transit and as a responsible producer you you want to feel good about the freight forwarder the shipper that your wine will be in good hands and of course there are various things that can happen uh in the journey that are are really not in anyone's control on either end of the contract but they can cause problems for the wine downstream
0: and what kind of percentage of containers have problems do you think um or are all yours perfect? I
1: wish, I, I, I wish, wish. <laughs> you know, in a perfect, in a perfect world, that would be nothing. In my experience, it's very small. I mean, it's, it's maybe 1%. Um, and there are various things that can cause problems. Say we're shipping overseas in a, in a Fluxy container. Uh, if you have something with a high, high sugar content or a high color content, say that at the, At the request of your buyer, you've added a good deal of uh, Tenturier grape like Ruby Red or perhaps a good deal of Color Concentrate um, that can plug the filters going into your flexi bag that can cause filterability issues. And um, if it's the case of color, you can get a lot of color that's actually caught in the filter. And then the final product going in to the container will, will not be as deep in color. Uh, this is a problem we've seen in Europe because there are certain markets, Germany is one where they really like dark color and red wine. And so um, they'll, they'll request various means of amplifying the color and sometimes um, the color uh, addition and the, and the filter don't mix. That can cause a problem. Um, obviously, if there's any kind of loading issue, if there's um, you know, yeast or high bacterial load, in the wine, um, there shouldn't be, um, but if there is, that can because refermentation that will cause the bag to leak or burst. If for some reason you have a high dissolved CO2 content, perhaps the wine is very young and there's a lot of dissolved CO2, that can also cause pressure on the bag. Uh, I've seen issues where the, um, the loading and unloading of the container will actually displace the valve on the flexi container, so it's impossible to unload it. Um, you can't hook up a hose to it. Obviously that's a problem with the the freight forwarder, um, but that can be quite a hassle. Uh, also delays in shipping are a very serious issue. Uh, we saw this not too long ago with the Oakland port strike where there were containers of wine and other things sitting uh, at the port for many weeks before they could be loaded. We're already expecting a three week transit time from California to the EU. So um, imagine if that time is doubled or troubled, um, that wine is sitting there for a long time, it could get quite warm. Um, If the free SO2 is not high enough, there could be other quality issues that happen. And then of course, with COVID, there's been a global slowdown in shipping. Um, Initially, ships weren't sailing because they weren't full. And then uh, containers weren't where they needed to be around the world um that's been a problem as well as all the other shortages of dry goods and other things that make the wine move um that's that's caused a number of slowdowns for the past year we've seen a lot of delays and loading dates or sometimes a loading date is canceled at the last moment when the wine's already been prepped and that pushes everything down and that causes not only supply concerns if the wine is, um, is in transit too long, but also logistical concerns if uh, you miss the packaging date or you have a run out in market because you didn't get your wine on time.
0: Now, one thing um, I was chatting about with a tech friend recently, in terms of the uh, plastic inside the containers, the 24,000 litres, how recyclable are they and how much of it gets recycled? Have you done like a sustainability analysis on it? I,
1: I don't know that. That's a good question. He did. Uh, there that was either. a recent <laughs> MW.
0: <laughs> no,
1: no, I know. It's a great question. There's a recent MW who did it. Their RP on on um, bulk shipping, and I, I he might be a person to ask. Um, but that's a very good question.
0: Fair enough. Fair enough. Um, okay. So well, let's. Um... Well, let's ask, what, in terms of uh, QC analysis um, and pre-bottling treatments, what do you as a company consider most important, either um, at your end or, or is that you advise the bottlers that you use in different countries?
1: All right. there are, right. Um, let's say there are a couple of families of checks that are important, and I'll break it down by that. Uh, one, of course, is uh, organoleptic check. It's easy to forget about that, but you need to taste the product. Some, some qualified person needs to taste the product um, that's going to be packaged and to, to sign off that the quality and the consistency are appropriate. Um, the second would be labeling and dry goods checks. Um, that's very important because of the legality. You have an alcohol on your label, for example. You have a maybe a vintage claim, a varietal claim, a, an origin claim. And you need to check those against the actual composition of the wine to make sure that that's correct, uh, because you don't want to be in a situation where you are putting something in a bottle and the label does not accurately represent what's inside. If you get audited, that's trouble for you. So um, checking the, of course, the packaging that you're using, the right bottle, the right capsules and what on is, is that's important from a market and logistical point of view, but also knowing that the, the, any label claims are accurate to what's in the wine Thirdly, um, obviously, chemistry is important. Um, and I would say, first and foremost, anything that has a, um, a legal limit attached to it. So, you know, alcohol, right, your tax, tax variances uh, based on alcohol are important. Um, volatile acidity, uh, free and total SO2, those are all the most important um, and then it, of course in the EU, there are regulations regarding the uh, combination of residual sugar and acidity. Um, there's limits on the, on the sugar based on what the acidity of the wine is. So anything that has a, a legal limit or variance attached to it would be at the top of the list. Um, and then SO2 has the added importance of being an allergen. So that's another reason why that should be checked. And then of course, um, There are quality parameters associated with the chemistry. You don't want your free SO2 to be too low. Um, You may not want your pH to be too high, especially if you're not filtering going into bottle. Um, So all those are important. And then you may have a residual sugar specification, for example, and you want to make sure that you're there accurately, especially if you're adding sugar back into the product just before packaging. Uh, You want to make sure that you've dialed it in appropriately. So we have organoleptic, organoleptic QC- uh, packaging chemistry, a fourth would be a microbiological. Um, again, you, you may or may not be filtering, but you want to make sure you don't have yeast cells going into the bottle. You want to make sure you have no or very little bacteria going into the bottle or the package. Those are very important. Um, stability. I would, I would roll in with chemistry. um, Many wineries do cold and heat stability of all their products. Many do one or not the other. Some do neither. Um, certainly, if you're going into bag and box, if you have tartrate crystals build up, they can actually, um, you know, block the spigot. So you can't. Uh, you may not see it in the bag, but you can't get the wine out of the bag. So that's a problem. Um, so those are all important. And then on the line, your packaging line, you have a lot of very important QC QA processes. Um, Some of those are related to uh, consumer health and safety, so you might have a HACCP to cover those. Um, Certainly, if you're a large producer or bottler, you'll have a HACCP, and I want to emphasize that that is not for quality, it's for consumer safety, so it impacts things that would would be safety issues for the consumer. Um, For example, our CCPs are around uh, broken glass or sharps, foreign objects in the bottle and also uh, total SO2 since that's an allergen. So those are important checks on the line, quality checks like dissolved oxygen. Um, You wanna make sure that you don't have too high oxygen in your package, that'll make the wine deteriorate quickly. Fill on the line. That's important. That's a regulatory issue. You want to make sure you're not putting too much or too little in your package. Uh, if you're putting a screw cap, you want to check the torque. We've all been angered by picking up a, a screw cap bottle by the screw cap and having the bottle, plopped out under the capsule because the it wasn't put on tightly enough. So all those line issues are, are important. So again, organoleptic, uh, dry goods and labeling. Uh, Chemical stability, microbiological, and then line checks are, are my main categories.
0: Are you, um, as, uh, as I kneels, are you seeing a demand from different clients for lower SO2 and other changes? What are the sort of trends you're seeing for, for requests on, on um, products?
1: We have not seen requests for lower, well, I shouldn't say that. Um, From gatekeepers, we haven't seen any particular interest in changing the SO2, what they want is a stable product. We have seen over the last 10 years, our export customers, our European buyers are lowering their uh, free SO2 specifications. For a number of years, we had people requesting 50 parts free SO2 at loading, which is quite high, especially for a wine that like a, a white wine, for example, a Pinot Grigio that may have a low pH um, and those buyers are now drifting down to, you know, the, like maybe the 40 range, which would be a little high for, um, for bottling, but for, for export shipping where you're expecting that free so two to drop the transit, that's much more reasonable. So we have seen those drops over time. We are in general seeing, um, a drier palette than we did before. That doesn't always mean bone dry, but someone who is requesting, um, Forty grams per liter RS, and as Infandel Rosé may have backed down to twenty-five grams per liter, which is closer to what I was seeing at the beginning of my career. We are getting some inquiries into lower alcohol options. That's more in the domestic market. Um, I would be a little concerned about shipping of a wine that was very low in alcohol abroad. Again, with the concerns about stability and transit, I'm sure people do it. Um, but alcohol, of course, is a preservative to some degree. Um, but we we are seeing that. We're doing some trials with this new vintage um, that we're going to show some people in the market. Uh, one of the interesting things about lower alcohol trends is that there's we haven't seen a real... Um, a, a real answer about whether consumers are looking for wines that are lower, naturally lower in alcohol, like in the 11% range, or wines with alcohol removed in the, you know, say, 7 or 8% range. That's a question we haven't answered yet. Um, but lower alcohol in general or the perception of it definitely dovetails with the trend toward healthier living that we've been seeing the last few years.
0: So do you do um, alcohol removal in many of your wines as an experiment or is that not really something that you do in general?
1: We, we've we done some on an experimental basis. We don't have any products that are built around it now, but it's something we're willing to explore. Uh, some of our competitors have had good success. So we're, um, you know, a great way for us to test out new products is to do things in the private and exclusive label realm. We work with a lot of retailers doing private and exclusive brands. and. Um, and so we've had some ideas that we were able to sort of test market uh, through them at their request. And then if we see something that's doing well in their markets, then we might um, launch a brand around that. But that's um, we, we always have a lot going on. So there are many things that we want to do and not everything makes it through the pipeline.
0: Fair enough. And you, and you say you add sugar to some of your wines. I always forget that you're allowed to do that outside the EU, right? Um, so, it, what, so do you just is it just RCGM you put in or cane sugar or does it depend on the product?
1: Well, in California, you cannot add cane okay. sugar. You could do that in some states, like, you know, Washington, I think, in Texas. We we can add grape concentrate. It's, it's a great product. Um, so we can then we can add that at any stage in the process. Um, it's it's fine to dial in sweetness at the end if we're making a a product that is frankly sweet, um, like a white Zinfandel, for example, or a Muscat. Then we would always make that through a halted fermentation. Yeah. Because the sweetness is such an important part of the profile of that wine, um, but if it's simply an a, a adjustment for the the palate of the market, say it's a it's a wine where um, you know the market's at like four grams per liter of RS, and maybe you you finished it at one or two, then you might bump it up a little bit. Um, I would I would caution though, as a as a California winemaker, I can't help but point out that. Um, that in the EU, many, uh, many producers are permitted to enrich the must, right? <laughs> Which is something that we generally wouldn't do here yeah. in California because we haven't a need of it.
0: Uh, so, well, So now you mentioned four grams a litre of residual sugar. This was a past paper as well. So uh, what are the key factors to consider in drawing up a tech spec for an entry-level red wine imported in bulk with four grams of RS?
1: Okay, so... I think uh, technical specifications would certainly include the sugar, right? Um, And you want to give a range. For example, if my target was four, I would say three to five. I think that's reasonable. Um, Entry level usually means productions on the big side. So you have to think about tank gauging. And a one-quarter inch uh, gauge in a tank might mean, you know, 100 gallons or 50 gallons. So you have to, um, there's only so far you can dial in uh, your, your additions and your blending. So I would give a range for, for anything on a specification. Um, alcohol is important. Again, that's going to be a label claim. Volatile acidity is important because that is a, that's a legal issue. And also has to do of course, with the quality of the wine. Um, there's always a pH and a TA spec. I don't know how important those are really, but generally those are, have a pretty wide berth. Um, I think color is important for any red wine. And again, you might give a range, but you, you want to, um, people are very sensitive to color in the marketplace. So you wanna make sure that you have a, um, a specification for color so that you're not getting too light or too dark relative to expectations. And it's difficult to build a specification around taste, um, but I think you have to give some parameters to indicate um, that you as the buyer are looking for something that is fresh. Um, Is certainly if your sales aren't what you anticipate and a contract intended to span one year ends up uh, dragging out over two or two and a half years, you might have um, issues with freshness in the wine. Um, And so, you know, maybe you can pursue some options uh, together with your supplier um, to, you know, to keep the wine in good condition, but you want to make sure that it's tasting good. It's something saleable. Those are all important and then certainly at loading, um, you'd want to have microbial stability. you'd want to make sure that things are being filtered going into their, um, into the loading so that you're not dealing with refermentation later. And so2, if I didn't mention that, uh, free and total so2 are all important.
0: So do you use any um, like uh, like bottle books or any of those um, uh, companies where they enter data that, to share it or do you do um, with each supplier differently? Or each for each people you're supplying differently. We
1: do everything differently with each supply uh, each um, buyer, and I think as a as a supplier, you know, we always want to manage our buyers, but the buyers also want to manage their suppliers, um, and and they're the buyers. So we have a lot of internal systems, but it's just not feasible to, for us to impose any system of ours onto our, our family of buyers. So we do something different for each one. And uh certainly for export in particular, there's a lot of paperwork. So we have one or two people on our team that are dedicated to filling out the specifications and the proformas and getting everything right for those buyers and their
0: markets. Cool. So let's try some let's try some P4 ones because I think they're all right. there's, more, there's probably more to say on them rather than. <laughs> um, but uh, as a so let's try this one. As a manager of a five hundred thousand case wine brand, uh, what five key statistics would you closely monitor to gauge the performance of your brand, and why? Um, so, okay. you, do you have any private brands for Aniels that, that you deal you deal with, or are you just purely sort of, uh private label?
1: No, no, we are actually growing quite fast. In the national brands business, our entire consumer goods business, you know, branded wine has been growing. That's been a particular focus of ours. Uh, we bought a well over a million cases a year. Um, some of that is for our, for na- uh, national brands, our brands, and some are for exclusives of private labels, you know, for retailers or wine clubs or other interests. And our largest national brand is called Wine 39, and we're about 460,000 cases, I think, currently. Um... So that, that's something that's that's very important to us. Uh, we look at these numbers all the time, and, um, and yeah, and I would say that the the things that you look at, um, there's there's no one um, silver bullet that's going to give you the the best visibility or best answer every time. You have to use different numbers in concert. Now, if you talk to any uh, sales director or salesperson, they're going to talk about volume, and volume is important, right? Because you want to grow. Um, and a lot of people's, uh, incentives, personal incentives are based on volume. So of course, um, that's, you know, that's what people matter and it's easy to, it's matters to people. You can look at it quickly. Um, so volume is important, but it is not the most important by any means, because if you sell a hundred thousand cases and you lose a penny on every case, you, you didn't win, you lost, uh, because you're losing money. And the, the more you grow, the more money you're going to lose. So uh, revenue is also important. How much money are you bringing in? How many of those cases did you, um, did you have to give away? You know, If you're still making you know, Syrah, bless your heart, and it's not doing well, and uh, you're trying to sell Sauvignon Blanc, and, and um, you give away a case of Syrah for every five cases of Sauvignon Blanc you sell, you're not making any revenue on that. So revenue is important. Um, Got to look at that. You want to keep selling. You don't want to run out of product. Of course, um, if you lose your place on the shelf, it's going to be replaced in a heartbeat by something else. Um, something that matters to me a lot is the margin, the gross margin. And in fact, volume and margin together uh, are are pretty good pair to look at. You need to know how much you're making on every case. That's really important um, because, again, if you're losing money on every sale, you're not growing. Uh, you're digging yourself into a hole. So margin important because the margin is where you're going to have your engine for growth. Uh, the money that you can plow back into capital improvements or maybe acquiring additional brands, buying better grapes, um, hiring more people, all those things you need to grow. So margin is very important to me. It's important on the, on the national brand side, you know, on the branded side. It's also important on the bulk or B2B side. Um, you need to know what you're making and uh, and what you can sustain as a business, what margin you need to make to keep things growing.
0: What kind of margins do you aim for? Can you say? No, <laughs>
1: <laughs> I'll tell you it varies. Okay, It varies um, and, and there are times when the market is softer and you have to take a lower margin, times when the market is tighter and you can go up more. Um, and I'll also say that as a supplier, sometimes we win and sometimes we lose. And the, the best market is when everybody can make a little bit of money, and the consumer can get a, a good product at a fair price. Um, but the the wine industry exists in a cycle, so everybody's uh, pockets expand and contract, you know, over a ten year period. Um, another parameter I think is really important is organic growth. Um, you can um, get a lot of new orders, which is great. You can get fast uh, brand growth that way, acceleration. But if those accounts do not reorder. If they're not replacing as they sell out, then that growth is very short lived. So not just looking at how many cases you're shipping, but actually looking at how many of those are reorders and how many accounts are reordering for higher volumes. So that's really important. Again, organic growth. So growth within existing accounts rather than just a new account, which may be here today and gone tomorrow. Uh, another parameter people look at a lot is depletions. Um, that is important. Maybe depletions and organic growth together would be powerful. Depletions are how when something is leaving your warehouse. Um, so that can be important because if you're working, particularly in the U.S. where you have the three-tier system, you're working with uh, distributors, wholesalers, and they, they may be moving your product or they may be pushing somebody else's product. Um, So you can look at depletions and see what the volumes are of your wines leaving the warehouse. But you need to be cautious with that because sometimes those volumes are being depleted because they're filling a big pipeline. And then they may sit there. If something sits on a shelf for six months, it doesn't move. That's not going to help. Um, when Costco or like an, another club retailer or big box retailer buy something, they're going to be, they're very jealous about their floor space. So if they gave you a couple pallets worth of floor space and you don't move product, you're out of there. Um, there are other retailers that they might be happy to just have any wine sitting on their on their shelf um, for an indefinite period of time. So it's good to look at depletions, but you need to also see that those depletions are moving did you just have a bunch of wine leave your warehouse because it's going to fill a distribution pipeline and just sit there? Or is it actually going through the pipeline? So that's very important to And then finally, if you're in a, a retail brand, a large brand, um, and you have access to something akin to Nielsen data in the US, where you can look at large brands in retail, not every retailer participates, but many do. And you can see um, over time, you can look at what your competitors are doing. And if you can see that you're di- displacing other brands, then that's very important. And this is very market-specific. You have to be able to look at individual cities or individual countries even, or individual retailers uh, and and say, okay, we're this brand, this competitor of ours is shrinking and we're growing. So we're possibly taking share away from this competitor. That's important too, because then you can use that as ammunition to go out to other retailers or other buyers and say, look, we displace this brand that you have on your shelf. We have consumers that prefer our brand in this market and we think that your consumers are going to prefer our brand in your market too. So that's an important thing to be able to monitor and be able to take out with you when you're selling.
0: Let's start with... um In terms of of private label, or in terms of of bulk packaging, like what are the commercial advantages and disadvantages of packing bottling wine in the local market of consumption? And is this a growing trend? It seems to be in the UK. I presume it is elsewhere. Are you seeing growth in that sector in general? And you know, are those trends good for the industry in general?
1: The question, uh, the answer is always who, or you know, who (laughs) are you talking about? Or it depends who you're talking about. Um, All. Almost all of our sales to to europe um and and uh, have have been um, more bulk. you know, it's more bulk than than mm-hmm. branded. And I think it's good and bad. Um, if you're selling at a at a good price, then I think that's great. If the consumer is getting um the wine they want and the package they like, that's great too. I think a huge benefit of packaging in the in market is sustainability, of course, because it's cheaper, it's lower carbon footprint to ship wine in bulk. And if anyone has a, a negative view of bulk wine, um, I think you need look no further than New Zealand. They're always willing to um, sell bulk Sauvignon Blanc um, when they've got a long vintage. They come back into balance pretty quickly. Um, Oh, that's, that's, you know, that their entire nation's brand has been built on high quality and, uh, and, and it is high quality. So, so they're always, um, you know, willing to, to sell if they have an excess. And then of course there's, you know, all over the world, you can, you can look at any country and they're, they're doing some, some high quality wine that's shipped in bulk. So it's a lower carbon footprint. And then when it's bottled in market, a lot of times you're getting the label on it that, that, that market wants because it's going to a, a retailer or an importer in that market who knows the market really well. Uh, so they, I mean, I've, I've seen wine of mine go into brands that and packages that I would never choose. Uh, they would, they would never, I would never think would appeal to the consumer in my market, but it flies off the shelves there. So you get that benefit of, of the importer or the retailer in that market, knowing what is going to sell there. So that's, that's big. Um, if you are shipping your wine and it's going to be your label on it, um, there are provenance concerns. Um, their counterfeiting is real, um, that it's a problem ar- around the world, uh, and, you know, more serious in some markets than others. So you may be concerned that if you ship your wine in bulk, um, there's a greater opportunity that, that somebody is going to swap that out for something else. And, and put your name on it and that'll, that'll be a problem for you. Um, or if there's a problem in transit or in packaging that results in a quality issue in the wine, again, if, if it is your name on it, um, that, that can be a problem for you, even if it's not your name on it. Um, a problem that was not caused by you, uh, after it left your winery, um, could, could come back to hurt you later. So that's, that's tricky. Um, even, even for example, if um, if there's wine coming from South Africa and wine coming from Chile, and the transit route is just um, happens to be more efficient uh, coming from one country from the other, it can hurt um, it can hurt the supplier in the other country, even though their their wine was in perfectly good condition when it left, because maybe the the transit time was way longer than it should have been. Um, so, whereas, if they'd shipped in, in in bottle, maybe there'd you know be less of a quality concern
0: so in terms of fraud um and is that something you've had to deal with as a company very often i mean no, or, or is there anything have... you can do about it like even if it's like, if it's outside if it's I know, in china or or wherever like is there much you can do about it when it's there or do you just have to suck it up and make a complicated label
1: you know, it's it's tough you know there are we have not had to deal with it um you know when you usually read about fraud it's on the very high end um and certainly Oprion, you know or petrus they can do very complex things with with labeling and and with um you know a- attaching um identification to each bottle to lower the instance of fraud but then you have something like you know blossom hill which had counterfeiting issues where that's a that's a mass produced wine it's not an expensive wine and there's just not going to you know you, it's, it's, it's a different prospect to think of trying to weave some complex provenance uh, identifier into those bottles. So that's tough. I think that one thing that's important, and it touches on another question that, that you had floated about, um, about exporting wine and being in export markets, and that is the importance of really being in market. If you're trying to make a push for export and you want to be successful and you want to make sure it's your wine with your label, then you need to have an in-market presence. And that could be someone from your organization or it could be a trusted broker or other representative in that market. But I think it's a pipe dream in most cases to think that you can just send a lot of wine across the water somewhere else and that it's going to get in the right hands and you'll get paid for it every time. And if if you're not really there.
0: Uh, so yeah, I mean that was kind of what I was going to ask you next. So that's perfect. Like, uh, yeah, you're export director of a established wine company um, producing in excess of one million nine case of cases. Well, you basically are, so. Um, uh, how would uh, how would you look to how would you seek to capitalize on grain markets from, uh, for for wine? Uh, which markets? So I suppose we could rephrase this. Which markets do you serve now, um, and which ones are you kind of looking at? If you can tell us.
1: Sure. Um, so for the U.S., I mean the next attractive or the most attractive export market is always Canada. Because it's it's a big country, uh, a lot of cultural similarities, uh, they're right next door to us. A challenge with Canada is that the provinces all sell alcohol differently. There are free markets, there are monopolies. Um, but But in the U.S., we're accustomed to this very complicated three-tier distribution system where every state is different. Um, so, so we're used to handling thorny compliance issues like that. So Canada is very attractive. Also they're close by. It's always easier to do business with people. You can see face to face, um, and, and visit, uh, easily. So, so Canada is attractive, uh, to, I think many U S producers, of course, there's wine in Canada, but not, not on a large scale yet. Um, and then after that, um, Europe is, is often attractive because there are already a lot of, of. Um, relationships existing um, between the U.S. and Europe in terms of drinks, um, Asia to some degree is is attractive. We haven't made a big play there. Uh, we do a little some business there. Um, we don't really have a footprint in place. Um, that's an case where where you really you want to have a broker. You want to have someone who's working for you. Someone who's in market and knows the market, and they know what's going to sell. Um, a lot of the the challenge with going into emerging wine markets um, is that the it's very the price is very sensitive. You don't have an established mature market where there's a there's tiered pricing and you have your entry level buyers and your high end buyers. It's very it's established. Um, it's there's often a much stronger bifurcation between the few people who are buying the the most prestigious, most expensive and scarce wines and the people who are curious about wine, but they're not really going to uh, spend a lot of money on it. So that can be, that can be tough. And that's again, where it's good to have a, a sensitive in market partner to work with you. Um, we've also seen, you know, one-off business in, in Uganda, in Nigeria um th- those are emerging wine countries. if you if you're making a million cases, you know, if you're making um now that if it's a million cases of twenty different brands, then maybe it's hard to be in every market. But if it's a million cases of one brand, um, then you can spread yourself a little a little more thinly and you can go into some of these like you know really blue sky markets where there aren't a lot of people. um one thing to to keep in mind though, when you're working abroad is that, uh, it's hard enough to enforce a contract in the U.S. <laughs> um, we, you know, we have contract law here, just like in the U.K., um, but um, but the wine world is small, you know, and you don't want to disrupt a relationship forever. So it, it can be hard to enforce a contract in a sensitive and long-term sustainable way, you um, if, if, if you really run into a roadblock and if you're abroad that, you know, it's even, it's even tougher. Um, so it, we, you have to ask yourself, you know, is this, am I working with a reputable buyer? Um, do I know other people who've done business with them? Do they have much of a presence in the US? Are they willing to to prepay you know how what is the stability of the currency in this country and you have to have a sense that if you ship them product you're going to get paid and that's not to say that that people are, are running around defrauding each other um every day um but you you want to have a good relationship um and and feel good about the fact that that um your product is going to go into market and get sold and that you're going to be paid in a timely fashion definitely the um the payment terms tend to get stretched out when you're doing export business and that has to do with the you know transit times and and uh the the norms in in various regions um the the 30 days from bill of lading in the US just doesn't doesn't hold everywhere um so you have to you have to be um, not just look at the volume that, that you think you can move, but also the quickness with, with, you'll, which, with which you'll get paid.
0: Are there any markets that you're pulling out of?
1: There are no markets that we're pulling out of, but I will say that um, the, the domestic market in the U.S. is so, so big um, that it's very easy to, to sell all our wine here. So historically, we often looked to uh, export when we had a lot of excess. And we wanted to to get rid of it. Um, there are a lot of price sensitive buyers, and um, you know, particularly in Europe again, that, that will that will you know pick up wine for a, a grocery chain, and you know, whether it's a like a California white or a, a white uh Muscat in the past, um, and it's been a good outlet. But when prices tend to be a little bit more sensitive in export markets, and again, the payment terms are longer, so if you can sell all your inventory. In the U.S. Uh, and get, get paid on time, um, then that's going to be pretty appealing. So right now, the market is tight in the U.S. Uh, we had a short vintage in 2020 um, because of COVID, you know, things are flying off the shelf in retail. Uh, so so we're, we're working hard just to meet our contractual obligations, um, you know, going into vintage. So we're not going to have a lot to sell and, and export. And the export buyers tend to be on a different a different schedule. They tend to purchase later and ship later than domestic buyers. So you have to be willing to commit that inventory. So I would say there's no market that we, that we would want to get out of. Um, we've had some success you know, in every market that we've been in. It's a matter of how much we're able to commit to them given the robust sales we're seeing in the US.
0: Well, that leads on quite well. I <laughs> So uh, what have been the most important changes in global wine supply and demand over the past three years? Um, so, uh, one of the stats I heard last year in one of the webinars was that um, within the first six weeks of lockdown, you had uh, two point five million more wine consumers in the US, or something similar, um, off the top of my head. Which is which is which is nuts. Have you seen that continue, um, or have people gone back to drinking beer?
1: It's a, people haven't gone to, back to drinking beer. People are drinking everything.
0: Okay. Um, I so. Can
1: yeah, yeah, right. Uh, <laughs> we're working hard here. Um, so there, there has been some uh, concern in the wine industry that growth in wine consumption is flat. And from a consumer responsibility, you know, perspective and, and health perspective, the mantra of the wine industry has generally been not to get new people to drink, but to convert people to wine from other types of alcohol. Um so, like I, I did, uh, my my RP uh, had to do with the growth of American wines on premise and something that I, I saw that after prohibition spirits, people still drink a lot of spirits, but that wine and spirits both seem to take market share away from beer. And that seemed to have happened to some degree in the last year as well, uh, where beer has you know, been faltering for some time. But what we are seeing with a lot of younger consumers is that they're very ecumenical in their tastes they don't just drink any one kind of thing. They drink a lot of beverages, um, all kinds of alcohol and also non-alcoholic beverages as well. So um, for people who who need to see wine growing as a category year on year, uh, they're, they're anxious and disappointed right now. But if you look at the long-term, um, I would say personally, there's nothing to be particularly concerned about. Now in the past, um, you're with COVID, well, let's, so let's pivot to your question about supply and demand issues. Um, what are important ones? Definitely COVID is one. Now, this is an area where you can get yourself into a trap on an essay because uh, COVID is such a big issue and you want to be careful. And you might you might say less than you ought to about it um, or about anything because there's so much attached to, to that issue in your mind that you think that um, some things can go without saying. But the, your examiners are always going to want to know, okay, great, you mentioned this important topic, but what are you going to say about it? What is the implication or the so what? So uh, what is the so what around COVID? Well, if you're a small producer and you're mostly on-premise, then you are probably in trouble and you might have gone out of business. Um, I get the market reports from System Blogit. Uh, from from Sweden because we do some business there and and I get some reports from the importers with whom we work and you know just like in the U S retail was very strong everything was was bigger last year than the year before but in the the horca the hotel restaurant cafe category you know things were down to nothing right because people couldn't couldn't eat out or didn't want to eat out so if you were a, if you're a big producer if you're mostly in grocery retail then you probably did great because Um, people did a lot of the the pantry stocking where they were buying lots, uh, additional volumes of items that they normally bought. And that, that slowed down, of course, to some degree people, you know, we don't know what's going on over the next year, but we know that, that we're more open than we were a year ago. Um, so we saw a big boost in wine sales. Is that going to continue indefinitely? No, probably not, but it did really impact supply and demand because what it did was it created tremendous demand pressure for all of the, you know, say 15 and under, $12 and under category wines, the wines that people stuck up on. At the same time, a lot of people who weren't eating out were going out and they were buying those splurgy wines that they might buy in a restaurant. A great example would be Duckhorn, right? Duckhorn is a, is a, they're a category master. They're on the high end, Duckhorn, Napa Valley Cabernet Sauvignon, an excellent bottle of wine, Uh, still excellent through several ownership changes. They've really protected that brand, but they also have a lot of brand extensions. They have their Pinot Noir, they have the Decoy, they have spritzers now, Um, so they've they've expanded a lot and you can climb up the ladder with them. So brands like that have a lot of success or people already recognize the brand and they say, "Oh, I can't go to my favorite restaurant, but look, I was at the store and I I saw this bottle so I'm going to buy it." So there was some some definitely limited um positive impact to some higher end brands too if they were able to get people to to purchase them um you know, despite restaurants being closed. Obviously, um, uh, wineries that were able to pivot to a direct-to-consumer model or already had a good direct-to-consumer model did well. But in terms of of demand, demand has been high and supply is now very tight. And in California, that has been impacted by the, the small harvest we had in 2020. So COVID has been a big supply and demand issue. COVID's also had a massive impact on South Africa where they had uh, tremendous limits on the, um, you know, they they had sale of alcohol ban, couldn't couldn't sell, couldn't export. Um, that that's been very tough on their industry, and they're certainly, I, I'm sure, have lost shelf space to to Chile, to New Zealand, to the U.S. Maybe in some cases, it's been very harmful for them. But they've been a significant player in the world uh, bulk wine market. Um, so that's. That's impacted um, supply to some degree. Another thing that has been an impact on global supply and demand is the relationship between China and Australia. Uh, Australia and Chile had enjoyed free trade with China, zero duties on wine. So they were sending a lot of the you know, everyday wines to China and that um, relationship is no longer the case with China and Australia. There are massive tariffs on Australian wine. So Australia now has a, a you know, large supply of wine um that they need to to offload elsewhere. So that's that's has some ripple effects. And then you can look at um again the short 2020 harvest in the US, the fires, you know, to some degree there were some wines that didn't get made because of the fires. And then there are some sales that probably won't happen due to perception issues around quality, uh, some of which are are greatly unfounded, really. Um, but we we know in California that fire is going to be part of the equation going forward, as will water. That uh, will impact supply. The uh, terrible weather patterns we've seen in Europe this year, uh, with very damaging frosts, uh, now some flooding um, that's you know caused some you know, tragic deaths. Um, also, there'll be some impacts, I imagine, to the harvest in terms of labor issues and and potential flooding of vineyards. So. Um, so those things are going to be impactful as well, um, and we will see at the end of the 2021 vintage.
0: Have you been hit by any of the tariff wars that have been like going on between well, Europe and America? Had a bit of a scuffle not too long ago. Is it something that you've been you've, that the tariffs have been affected you particularly, or people just has it not really had much of a knock on?
1: It's Im- it's impacted importers and retailers a lot. It hasn't impacted us as a supplier. Um, Has there been an uptick in, in purchasing of domestic wines in the U.S.? I S I haven't seen it. It's possible that it has a lot of people, um, who are committed to, to buying certain brands and certain wines. We're going to keep buying those. Um, so I don't know if, if there's really a long-term effect on that. Um, it's, it's a good question. It was definitely very much in the news. I, I don't, um, and I, 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 I read that there are some, certainly some negative impact being felt by producers in Europe. If that's going to be a long-term effect on supply and demand, I don't know. But I have not read anything convincing to tell me that people in the U.S. permanently converted away from those wines.
0: So how closely do you work with the spirits arm of your business in terms of sales or delivery, or are you just completely separate?
1: We're not separate. We're pretty integrated. Um, I, I personally, because I work on the supply side, I, I sell spirits as well as wine. Uh, we mostly do brandy, but we also do gin. We've done a couple other things as well. Uh, they tend to be different. We have a couple of very large contracts for spirits and then we do a, a brisk business and small volume spirits. And those are mostly to specifically to spirits producers. And it's almost all domestic.
0: Cool. Well, listen, I'm I'm quite conscious of time, so we're nearly up to our hour. But um, so I always like to end on kind of an optimistic note. Uh, what do you think are the major causes for optimism in the wine world today?
1: Oh, that's a great question. Um, I think that um, I think we have reason to be optimistic that wine is a it's special, it's unique, it's been around for a long time. There are ups and downs, but it it offers pleasure and diversity and, um, and learning and, and, uh, sociability in a way that other beverages do not offer. I really believe that. Um, I'm very heartened by, uh, people entering the business today. People are as enthusiastic as ever, and there are more people than ever who feel, uh, Welcome in the wine business. That's not to say that we can't improve. I think we can and need to improve in terms of welcoming um, new people into the business. Um, but it's it's no longer something that you go into because your dad did it. Um, and I'm 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 a case in point of that. Um, but but it's 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 something that that more people than ever are seeing themselves uh, as being a part of. Yes, I could work in the wine business, or yes, I can I can buy and enjoy wine. It Doesn't matter if my parents own a winery or if I um, you know come from this or that background. So wine is becoming more democratic, and I think that that's a it's necessary for the future of wine. But I think it's also a good thing, um, and I think that. There are a lot of things going on in classic regions to freshen them up. If you look at Rioja and some of the new things they're doing there, uh, the Tempranillo Blanco um, with uh, single vineyard wines, the you know more modern styles. That's a very tradition bound region that's that's exploding with interest. Um, Some emerging regions um, are very uh, have a lot to look at. Mexico, I think, um, Bolivia. And, uh, I don't want to give it, I don't want to give away anybody's secrets. I won't mention anymore. Canada, certainly, um, there's a lot, there's a lot that's growing and there's a lot that's new in wine. So I'm excited about that. And at the end of the day, it's a, wine is, is pleasurable and a lot of fun. So I don't think that anyone should look at any news item on a particular day and think that the world of wine is coming to an end.
0: Cool. Well, that's a lovely note to end on. (laughs) Thank you very much indeed. Thank you so much for your time. It was, um, those are great, great answers. And um, yeah, really, really, really helpful. Thank you very much indeed.
1: You're welcome, Bob, and good luck to you.
0: Thank you very much.